my god, I'm so sorry. Oh, did so you not sorry. record any of that? <laughs> no, we were like here in the recording screen and I didn't click record. Oh my god. Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're finding new reasons to tell Brian Braddock to get lost again in Excalibur number 123, Lost <laughs> Found, aka The Search Part 2, featuring the extended Calvin Rankin cameo nobody asked for, and also Megan says yes to the dress. Excalibur number 123 was originally published in July 1998, and the creative team is Ben Robb on writing, Trevor Scott on pencils, Scott Hanna on inks, Kevin Tinsley on colors, Richard Starkings and Comicraft on letters, and Frank Peteris on editing. Well, how'd you talk me into this? You should use Allison. She's the one who has to wear it. It's unlucky for the bride to wear a gown before the wedding day. How unlucky can she get? Look who she's married. Monty, you shouldn't talk like that. Julio's a good boy. Come on, Rose, will you? See the guy for what he is. He belongs to a gang. It's a good boy's gang. They help people. And then there were three. Welcome to our final trio of episodes. I am quite sure I finally have the math right on that. You know who I am by now. I'm a sequential scholar of sex and gender in comics and lots else, and an unofficial PR manager to everyone's favorite fuzzy elf. And my name is Dr. Anna Papard. I am joined for a few more hours at least by Mav. How's your fit this week? I'm exhausted. I, I've um, I've been back at work full time for four days now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's four too many. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like oh my god it's just like yeah you know, three di- three weeks off and i just forgot how to do this uh yep. I'm, <laughs> i don't know man no i'm doing all right uh hi my name is christopher maverick you can call me mav i am teaching professor of digital narrative and interactive design at university of pittsburgh i co-host this show and another show called vox popcast um i write stuff about sex and gender and superheroes and pop culture and tv and movies and porn and professional wrestling stuff like that you know i it's kind of an amalgamation of the stuff you've heard me say for the last 130 <laughs> episodes or something i you know go back and check those i'm, I'm sure I, I said it more eloquently than i did just now <laughs> i've been podcasting like... for like 10 years you'd think i'd be good at it but at, at, at introducing myself no at this point you should just be able to say i'm dr christopher maverick i study a bunch of cool ass shit because yeah. like oh, God. what else is that list other than that i i, sure. I basically said i don't know i don't know how everybody else we never talked about this on the air i am very much of the opinion as a teacher that the reason i teach college classes is that i should not be allowed in high school classes because i cannot (laughs) i can't teach without swearing so i will so i will literally like i'll i will sometimes say well what do you guys think of this story well, I thought it was kind of bullshit and they, and, and, you know, and so I'm likely to swear maybe one or two classes into a semester for the first time. And then I just really, I don't really try to stop myself after that. And I think that they, my students become desensitized to it once they, once they realize, oh, it's okay. And it's great when they notice and they'll, you know, someone will like, you know, drop an F-bomb in class. And then there's like a hush over to, just to see if I, I react to it and I never do. And then they realize that they're in a safe space. Um, so, <laughs> so, so I don't know. Well, I'm glad that that's, that's the reason I was, I was wondering what the reason was going to be, but that's. Uh... Oh yeah. 
no, no, it's not. I'm very not, appropriate. No, there's, there's not like any legal, like, I don't have any restraining orders. It's not like a, I'm not on a list anywhere. I just, you know. You can't even make the joke. That's it. No, no I, I I, it's, merely, it's merely a language problem. <laughs> I got you. I got you. And yes, I'm feeling it too. I'm back in the classroom after being out of the classroom for eight months, and it's been quite a week. Um, Andrew, are you clamoring for the impending tinkle of wedding bells this week? No. I... <laughs> Megan <laughs> and Brian, <laughs> I'm on record with some thoughts on that. Uh, and I don't like weddings that much. They're like super stressful and they pit mm-hmm. families against each other and they like allow a new relationship to begin with this additional strain of massive debt. I don't know why we do them. But anyway. Is, is uh, your wife aware of this feeling? Or... <laughs> oh yeah, I like marriage. I just don't like weddings. <laughs> Fair enough. I, um, I got yeah. I got married for hunt I got married for $180 that we found in the couch cushion. I'm we, jealous we of that. We talked about this. Yeah. Yes, so, you know, there's that. Yeah. That that's my advice to my kids is elope. Just, just <laughs> don't do this to yourself. Anyway, or your um, <laughs> Yeah. Dr. J Andrew Demand of Sequential Scholars of the Claremont Run, both the Twitter thing and the book thing. Uh and I teach at St. Jerome's University, uh which is also fun. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Our intros Three haven't gone better. No after one all cares. This time. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we're, we're relying on our guests to save us. Our jovial jury is joined this week by an amazingly awesome writer and critic who I've had the pleasure of teaming up with a few times over the years over at Comics XF. The pod is absolutely delighted to welcome a fabulous first time guest in Armand Babu. Welcome, Armand. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. We're so thrilled to have you. Absolutely thrilled. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really eager to get into your comics origin story and talk through your Nightcrawler thoughts because I'm running out of chances to do that. But let's give you a little bio <laughs> first and then we'll come right back to you. Armand Babu is a theater professional, pop culture critic and game designer who notably, his words, co-writes Avengers reviews with me over at Comics XF. He's also helping cover the end of the Krakoan era and lots of other fabulous things. He's also one half of Weave Games. Want to talk about that at the end. He is obsessed with different ways stories can be told and considers it a bonus if that includes absurdity. So loving comics and particularly X-Men comics was an inevitability. And yeah, I want to talk about how you arrived with your love of Marvel's Merry Mutants. So let's get into your comics origin story, Armand. Like, have you been a lifelong reader of comics? What was your journey to becoming a comics fan? Well, superhero comics weren't really aren't really published uh in india so it that's what i I was curious about so yeah it it began with a random superman comic my parents picked up at the airport when we moved to india when i was six Uh, it wasn't until like about a decade and a half later that i finally figured out where the whole thing fit in it was part of the superman (laughs) uh thing it was very confusing because i learned later that i had not been introduced to superman but the eradicator oh so comics growing up were tintin um asterix and obelix and this uh, monthly anthology magazine called uh, Tinkle Comic, which just was uh, written for kids and was just a fantastic read growing up. But when I was about 16, there was a very brief period of time where comics were published in India on cheaper paper, and it was slightly smaller than the American-sized comics. And they were you know, very affordable. And yeah, that's how I got my start reading superhero comics in general, including the X-Men, which I, I began with the Chuck Austin run. So I have, <laughs> I have a certain fondness for it, even now. Love it. You, you, whoever, whatever gets you into comic, you know, into a comics first, you sort of imprint on it a little bit. Well, absolutely. Well, let me ask you a little bit more about that. You know, like you're getting into comics with the Chuck Austin run. This is how you're getting introduced to X-Men. I mean, what was it that drew you to this franchise and what keeps you coming back? So I was in school at at the time and I'd been in the same school for a long time. So what I really liked about it was how, how much it felt like a school. These are people mm-hmm. who have known each other for, for, for years. They all live together in one big campus. Uh, They all have ridiculous histories with each other. Some people care about each other deeply. Some people just know each other because they're part of the same institution. Uh, They all have that connection with each other. Over... Over the years, though, I mean, uh, as I you know grew to read more X-Men comics, I feel it really sort of sets them apart, uh, aside from the obvious mutant metaphor about minority oppression, is 
how they're apart from everything else in the universe. They have the weirdest adventures. They live the stories that they have no idea how to explain to anyone else. Every time they they team up with Spider-Man or the Avengers or someone, it it feels like they have always just been through the weirdest and worst stuff and um, <laughs> also the more interesting stuff. Ooh, I love that answer, especially like within the context of Excalibur. I mean, maybe I'll maybe I'll get back to that and ask you about your familiarity with this series. But I also want to hear a little bit about how you got into writing about comics, because if folks who are listening to the podcast by some by some turn of fate have somehow not read Armand's writing over at Comics XF, they really need to check it out. I just you're a great critic, Armand. I always love hearing what you got to say, and I really loved your your write up on the first issue of the end of the. Cohen era like a couple of weeks ago and you also reviewed Legion of X with uh, with Ari and I always look forward to those two because the two of you sort of talked through the very <laughs> mixed and complicated feelings I had about that book just so eloquently and you've do, done the She-Hulk reviews with Stephanie Burt as well so much good stuff over there to check out but yeah I'd love to hear about how you started writing about comics like what was what was sort of the catalyst there how long have you been doing it um I've been doing it for a bunch of years now. I forget when exactly I started. It was it was sporadic. It would be I would write it on random blog sites of mm-hmm. of mine. I can never fix on one. I wrote uh I, I wrote for Absolute Geeks briefly, including a piece on a vision I should link you to later. Oh, you and, should. But I really got my start in comics with uh, writing about it regularly with Comics XF in twenty twenty one. Uh, I started with Dead Dogs Bite. Zach had me r- write about that. I'd never heard of the comic before, but I was glad I got to do it because originally I was going to be writing about the Jason Aaron run of Avengers, and Zach changed his mind last minute, and I am forever grateful to him oh. for that. And yeah, so uh, ever since then, there has not been a month gone by where I haven't written at least one piece for Comics XF. And yeah, now I write for Shelf Dust and Gatecrashers as well occasionally. If you were going to give advice to a fellow aspiring sort of comics critic, because I think you've got such a great tone in your reviews, like you're managed to be much more here, I'll, cards on the table, Armand, you're a better reviewer than I am. You're much that more sort of even handed <laughs> and like able to sort of do the job of a critic, I think much better than I am. And I really sense that when we write together, because I've got sort of like my little hobby horses that I'll go off on, but uh, I really admire sort of your critical judgment. So I, I mean, I don't know, I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of your process and how you develop that and sort of like, I don't know, what what's sort of like your strategy when you approach review viewing a comic okay it's funny you say that because when we're writing reviews together i feel the same way like i've I, i've got to you know keep up with you or, or live up to your standard as well as my own um let's see any advice i would give to people i have adhd so i get stuck a lot writing comics thinking of everything that i could be writing there's just a lot of anxiety mm. in getting words down on paper yeah. so one thing that helps me is just to follow three things which is what do you think this comic is trying to say how successfully do you think it said it and lastly is to go with your gut go write down what you felt about this comic because that's what makes your writing your piece individual and the important thing there is to back it up if you feel like a comic made you feel a certain way if you're like oh my god i hated this comic say why say what about this comic inspired Mm. those feelings in you that is excellent advice and i can totally see how that comes across and sort of like yeah a lot of your writing because I mean reviews are inevitably going to be subjective and I mean I really like the sort of conversational reviews that we do over at Comics XF because it really facilitates that you know like we sort of write them together and we get that back and forth which I think is you know I think it's a huge reason why you know those reviews are effective and why so many of us enjoy them so much but like yeah I mean I really like that because it's inevitably subjective but as long as you're sort of explaining the reasons why you reacted the way that you did then you know that makes sense right because i mean what are people there for if not to kind of hear your voice and your perspective and commiserate with that perspective that makes a lot of sense that's great advice let me let me backtrack then and ask you about your excalibur history you talked about like in weird x-men comics do you have any particular history with the excalibur series and it's fine if you do not it's fine if you're jumping in at issue 123 because i don't know your history with excalibur 
So open-ended question. I got introduced to Excalibur um, from Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. And they talk about it with so much joy and enthusiasm. I was like, I I need to check this series out immediately. Especially um, with the cross-time caper, because I love parallel universe stuff. Actually, yeah, I first heard about Excalibur from a crossover with Exiles, which is a series I absolutely adore. But that was a very brief crossover. So I read, uh, so I started reading Excalibur and I was really charmed by it. And I think I read up to a certain point. Um, it's been a while since uh, I, I, I did that read through. Uh, there was some really big issue um, involving, I think, Galactus and, and the Phoenix. And mm-hmm. it, it was it was a milestone in the numbering. It felt like a good stopping point. So I just sort of stopped there. And so I was only mildly lost when I when I picked up uh, this issue <laughs> back again. I, I am dimly aware of Dog Lock and what his whole deal is. And uh, yeah, yeah. So that that's my history. Love it. Yeah, I uh, we've had a bunch of people lately that I feel like we're dropping in in some of these. I mean, until like three weeks ago, this whole like set of issues was not available on Marvel Unlimited. It just got added, so mm-hmm. it was like sort of this gray zone of issues for a while. But at least people can actually read it now. All right, I gotta ask you about Nightcrawler a little bit. As I mentioned, you did Legion of X reviews. I know he's a character that resonates with you, and that you've perhaps even cosplayed as Nightcrawler in the past if i'm recalling correctly um you are recalling correctly a very terrible nightcrawler costume um Andrew i remember and Matt, you describing you it as terrible but i thought it was pretty great so andrew and Mav, you haven't seen this picture but basically i wanted to do the thing where uh, you get nightcrawler's yellow eyes this was the first this is the second time i've ever cosplayed and my idea was to basically paint my eyelids yellow so when i close my eyes you get oh. that nightcrawler effect in pictures what I ended up doing was just raccoonizing the entire uh, <laughs> the entire eye area. It wasn't until my friends, who actually are excellent cosplayers, who showed up as Mystique and Azazel, they uh, they completed my costume by by you know they 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 handcrafted a nightcrawler tail for me um, later in the day when they showed up at the uh, the, the comic con I was at. <laughs> I think it was a great cause. I mean, anybody that cosplays Nightcrawler, anybody that even attempts it is a hero in my book. I would never. That's that's the hardest cosplay. But yeah, let me ask you a little bit about your affection for the character. You know, like, what draws you to this character? What interests you about this character? Well, right off the bat, he's he's got one of the coolest designs. He just looks cool. He acts. Even, even when he's using his powers, that, that purple bamf, uh, I, I just love the color, that colors that go with Nightcrawler. Black and blue, that, that red highlight, the purple bamfing, and, and the power, his powers of teleportation is just really cool as well. I, I don't know if you guys have ever played, the, there was this X-Men game that was set just before The Last Stand, in which you get to play as Wolverine, Nightcrawler, and Iceman. And the Wolverine and the Nightcrawler level were okay but in the nightcrawler levels you actually got to teleport around and it was the coolest thing god i don't think i've played that yeah that's not ringing a bell and i thought i played them all Uh, yeah it it was delightful and um yeah you you got to go up and it, it was a weird story and honestly considering it's tied into the movie it might be my favorite part of that particular canon storytelling um but then again the movies don't let you teleport as anyone so you know that's that's But uh, Nightcrawler is also, even if he didn't have those powers and that great design, he is just one of the nicest characters. He's the most likable. He's got joy. He's got he's got heart, yeah. and he's got romance. Not not just for his relationships, but his approach to life. Mm-hmm. And he also feels like the kind of guy that has your back on a bad day. He'll he'll sit with you when you you know when when you've been having been really going through it. Make a small joke and some observation he's gleaned from learning about you. And bam, you're having a better day. Aww. I definitely have a better day when I read a good nightcrawler appearance, which. There have not been many recently, but, but you know, when they do show up, it's like, oh, good night, caller. This is great. We Yeah, it's been getting better, and I will always be grateful for the, the Judgment Day issue uh, yes, of, of Immortal of X-Men. That, oof, God, so good. One of my top, top <laughs> Nightcrawler issues. But, um... No, that's a wonderful characterization of him because I feel like it comes up so many times when people are talking about the character that he's just, like, nice. And that can sound like such a simple obvious thing to say but there are so few superheroes who actually are just 
like nice i mean you always have to be gritty like that's always the way that you redo a character or quote-unquote modernize a character but yeah the fact that he's this character who although he's had his gritty moments he always sort of falls back into being that shoulder to cry on into that sort of fundamentally nice character and i think that to me that embodies something about i don't know the innocence of the superhero genre that we can be too eager to deconstruct sometimes you know we can want to take these heroes to these dark places in ways that aren't always productive and are really more of a shallow imitation of Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns than doing anything meaningful. And I don't know, Nightcrawler's ability to, for the most part, resist that is certainly something that keeps me coming back to the character. And I don't know, you said that really in a really lovely way. See, this is, I miss, I've been talking so much about like, oh man, like I can't wait to get like done the podcast because it's been such a journey and I haven't like super enjoyed the last few issues. And then like you come on and you're like saying all these things about Nightcrawler. I was like, no, I am really keen to talk about Nightcrawler now. <laughs> It's all, it's all, it's the passion that's coming back. I appreciate it. Yay. Call me in for <laughs> low points in podcasts, everyone. Who's <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, well, we're going to talk about it more because I want to ask you a few questions about Kurt and leadership, which is relevant to some of the Kurt comics you've reviewed lately. So we'll, we'll get back to that. Uh, but first, let's do our issue summary and then we will hit you up for your first impressions, Armand. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. If you were a shapeshifter, we'd never let you forget it, unlike Megan friends and fiance who let her hope instead of know that she can definitely look as pretty as Jean Grey. As a token of our devotion, here's a plot summary. Excalibur number 123 commences with kisses. As Megan welcomes Brian home from his manly pilgrimage of manliness, Brian is concerned that Megan won't love him anymore because his manly pilgrimage did not sufficiently restore his manhood, aka he still doesn't have his powers. But Megan, speaking for all of us, thinks that's incredibly silly. Elsewhere, specifically in the Operation Zero Tolerance Prime Sentinel base in Peru, Kurt, Colossus, Kitty, and Douglock continue to battle Mimic, who's awake and not happy about it, thinking he's still being manipulated by his captors. Kurt tries to reason with Mimic, but his overzealousness to question Calvin about the whereabouts of Professor X causes him to lash out all over again. Meanwhile, back on Muir Island, Brian catches up with Moira and Rain, and in response to questions about when he and Megan are going to tie the knot, suggests they do it next week. And so, Megan, Moira, and Rain head to London to try on wedding dresses, a task that makes perfect sense for a shapeshifter who can make her own clothes. Back in Peru, the team yeah. of Kurt, Kitty, Piotr, and Douglock team up to take down Mimic with a massive jolt of electricity, but in the process, they also bring down the force field surrounding the base, allowing the Prime Sentinels to escape. Kitty says, maybe they should go after them, but Kurt's like, no, I'm sure those genocidal maniacs have learned a valuable lesson about how genocide is wrong. Let's just not bother. Um, We conclude with Calvin revealing he knows nothing about the whereabouts of Professor X, and Megan feeling guilty about not telling Brian about the crush she apparently had on Piotr Rasputin. Gonna have some thoughts about that, as I'm sure we all will. Megan, you've got nothing to feel guilty about. Don't let Ben Rob try to convince you otherwise. Anyway, <laughs> Armand. Coming right back to you for your first impressions of this issue. I know you said you're being dropped into this era a little bit blind, but what are you particularly eager to talk about, if anything? Um, first of all, I love going into comics blind. I think Great. anyone who i i think that's great advice for people who are thinking of getting into anything you will never mm. know the full story that's go in true. blind embrace the, the the ridiculousness of everything but yeah first impressions i am annoyed at uh brian's return mm. he has always read as mm. a pretty terrible boyfriend and later husband yeah. to megan and i don't think i've ever read a comic in which he's ever satisfactorily made up for it he mm. it always feels like he's taking her for mm -hmm. granted and um, he definitely, it feels like he definitely is this issue as well. But over, aside from that, I had fun with this issue. I, I mentioned before, I, I am a huge fan of Exiles, and seeing Mimic, even though it's a very different Mimic, is still mm -hmm. fun. Yeah. He's got cool powers. It was a fun fight, and I feel bad for poor Nightcrawler. Didn't get to rescue someone. I know, I know. He's got the like panel where he where he does the sad walk away in in silhouette. Like I felt for him. Yeah, we'll get back to that because I want to talk about his character journey a little bit here with you. But let me pick up some first impressions from Mav and Andrew first. Uh, Mav, how are you feeling about this week's issue? Uh, um, I, mean, I don't, I don't want to crush Armand's um, joy or anything. <laughs> um, oh I am uncrushable. I <laughs> um, you know you, you've kindly ted mcginley yourself onto our show for the um you know 
it's a reference no one's going to get. If you understand my Ted McGinley reference, um, let us know in the comments. Um, <laughs> but I don't. I, I this is a comic where a lot of times where I'll be like, oh, I guess this is a comic. I don't know what happened here. This was a lot of of just nothing. Like I felt like Rob just didn't care. I really did. I felt like between this issue and the last issue, not only has it not been a month for me, we recorded an episode about this less than a week ago. I don't remember why they're fighting. I don't care. You're like, oh, I guess we'll just <laughs> do genocide some other time. Uh, it, like literally everything about it is sort of mimic is here because this is a character that he was allowed to use, right? Like no yeah, one was looking for at, at this point in time. This is before the exiles, right? No one's looking for mimic. No one's doing it. This is like a character that, hey, I opened the official handbook to the Marvel Universe at random and point it to a page. And I asked the editors and they said, yeah, sure. So that's what we're doing. We're using mimic today. And like literally everything about this story is exactly what you said about Megan's dress, right? Like it's a. Uh, Oh, why is she searching for a wedding dress when she can just be wearing any one of them? Like, that's weird. And everything about this was weird. I, I don't understand anybody's character. I don't understand why they're there. I don't know what they're fighting for. Are they rescuing Mimic? Are they fighting Mimic? Eh, you know, whatever. Like, can we just, are we at 22 pages yet? Good, we're done. That's how I felt about this book. We are very clearly treading water, which is one of the challenge of like this issue and the previous one. But could have I don't know anything though. Anything could have I been know. wrapped up. Instead, this this was literally like, look, we're on issue one twenty three. We want to end on one twenty five because that feels like a milestone. So just right. make some pages here. Just again, tell me a story about Kylan. Why not? Right, Farron even. Not really Farron, but like, any, but anything, you know, like, we're going to get there, we're going to get I know, there, I know, with I the Farron, but uh, anyway, I, 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 know, I know, but like, but like, why, why is any of this, <laughs> why has anything happened here? Well, we talked a lot in the last <laughs> episode about, you know, having some sympathy for the editorial restraints that are clearly on, on Rob, but I mean, there is stuff where you're just like, well, yeah, but he didn't have to like send all the characters that it would be meaningful to because i mean like megan goes shopping for this wedding dress with like moira and rain her two besties <laughs> you're just like okay like, so there's just stuff like that it's like he chose to not have like people that are closer to megan like be in the right. same location as her so that this scene was like stupider than it had to be you know like i mean these were choices that he made so like it's not like yes. none of this falls at his feet like i mean sure he didn't get to have professor xavier that's an editorial constraint sure he can't bring cerise back or whatever but like he still made choices here that he should be held accountable for yes. so i mean it's, kitty it's is in the book she could have been there it, it yeah i don't know it's just I, know, I, I was annoyed. I know. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm kind of in the same place as Mav. I, I, I think there's a couple of major problems with the scenes that he's trying to do. The, the first one for me with the mimic thing is in the previous issue, Kurt single-handedly took on five uh, Sentinel Prime doing kind of the same thing Mimic does, but there's only one of Mimic. Uh, and you also have all of Excalibur helping you out. So there's a weird kind of stepping down uh, of the threat. Mm. And it's not because of plot purposes because you know this is just another character lashing out who just has to be calmed down by by talking to him eventually so there's not a lot of tension there and then with the marriage thing i actually like some of the stuff that rob's attempting to do uh is setting up the wedding um but but as mentioned with the the moira being there moira is literally dying do you know yeah, what you i know mean Yes. How do you how do you just involve her in this wedding festivity stuff without dealing with that in some sort of meaningful well, way? Um, so yeah, no, the roses. yeah, it's it's not enough, and it doesn't really work for me for that reason. So exactly as Matt was saying, and and Hannah as well, it, it just to me it feels like they're treading water. I like some of Rob's instincts here, and I like some of his prose here. I will say that as well. Oh. Um, but but a lot of it is just kind of not not landing for me once again because I, I'm too conscious of the context in which these stories are taking place. Yeah, it's tricky. I don't know. Um, I have a sympathy for some of these later issues, and it's going to be really apparent in the next couple. But it almost feels like just right at the end of this run, like Ben Rob is sort of kind of maybe taking a stab at like doing Excalibur as Excalibur in terms of the incorporation of some humor and slapstick elements. I don't mm -hmm. think he's yeah. great at it, but 
again in the next issue we'll talk about that more like he he definitely goes for it in the next couple and like our mileage mm-hmm. on that will vary but well, certainly with like sort of like, the slapstick nature of Doug Locke these days yes that's exactly it like he like they even they specifically call out in this issue that something has fallen on Doug Locke again as and, and mm-hmm. Piotr's like oh I have to save you again that's that's funny comedy right and and like you know <laughs> Doug Locke running around like I'm not cut out for this only three weeks till retirement, you know, like that kind of stuff. And it's just like, I, I, I mean, I guess something's happening here. I'm not mad at Rob for it. I mean, again, he was given a job. He's been told he's losing the job in three months. Wrap it up. And like, wh- what's he supposed to do here? You know, he doesn't he doesn't have a lot of options, but it just there's it, it feels rushed. It feels pointless, like in what in what it is like the fact that you know the last we knew rain was furious at doug Lott for you know killing her mom but her mom's here going nah it's cool <laughs> you know yeah, <laughs> you know? And, know and rain and rain doesn't do anything or say anything so it just it very much sings nothing happens in this book because Ben Robb's not allowed to let anything happen, right? Like you said, he made choices, yeah. but, and, and sure. But like, so the, the legacy virus thing, the reason Moira doesn't care about the legacy virus is because Ben Robb can't kill her and he can't let her cure it. That's yeah. he, that's where he is. So maybe she'll go dress shopping instead, I guess. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I don't know, like signaling, signaling these constraints because you'll have characters explaining why they're behaving out of character, like just by saying it, you know, like the Moira thing, like she's said her motivations on page many times. The motivations don't make sense, but she has mm-hmm. said them. And so like, that's kind of the way he's trying to, trying to get around that. But it's just, sure. I don't know. Like, it's like a conscious but it doesn't make it good storytelling and again you just see those constraints coming up again and again but i mean a, a better writer could negotiate those constraints more effectively so it's both things but yeah anyway anyway i want to talk a little bit about kurt as a leader as i said so i'm going to come back to to you for it armand like kurt's leadership journey has been central to this book from the beginning that was kind of his story even coming into excalibur you know his failed leadership of the x-men leading into the mutant massacre leading to his almost death leading to his enduring disability in the pages of excalibur and then you know midway through this series he officially finally becomes the leader and he's had a lot of sort of struggle with that some of it's been written better than other times but certainly this final story you know again mileage will vary on whether it works but certainly a current of this final story is kurt once again reckoning with the burdens of leadership specifically in conversation with comparing himself to professor x in some ways and you know this desire to save professor x which he's supposedly obsessed with which is another thing that has been said and not shown i would argue but but still like i'll come back to you for the general question of like People keep trying to make Kurt a leader in various eras of the X-Men. And I don't know that it's ever like, I don't know, gone the way maybe I would want. And it leads me kind of to this question of like, should this character be kind of a leader character? And I don't know, I could answer that different ways. So I'll put it to you. Like, is this a character that you see being kind of a character that should be sort of leading teams of X-Men that should be that type of character within this franchise? What do you think? Um, so I mentioned that I started with the Chuck Austin run of X-Men and um, your first comics always leave the strongest impression on you. And he had a take on Nightcrawler as a leader in particular that that, that has stuck with me. He mm-hmm. said, if, I, if I'm remembering right, is that Kurt is happier not being the leader. He wants to be everyone's friend, to not have to make the hard calls and force people to get in line. And mm-hmm. I feel like that does track. I feel like yeah. Nightcrawler is empathetic enough and is smart enough to be a good leader if he stepped up and made some hard choices and hardened himself, especially given the kinds of things that the X-Men face. But he is someone looking for adventure and a good time and to be there for his friends. He is a great team player and one of the most experienced X-Men. And again, if if he wanted to, if he if he made some changes, he could be a great uh, one of the great X-Men leaders, but I don't think that's something he wants. Yeah, it makes me think about questions of leadership and sort of what that means and I don't know, 
sort of questions and conversations that you end up having in fan spaces about how do you make a character important? And I think that there's often this logic within fan spaces that you make a character important by either giving them Omega level powers. If you're talking about the X-Men franchise, like that's so important to some people, like your character has to have the maximum power level and that's how they become a really cool character. I've never cared about that. I love the limits on Nightcrawler's powers, which I think are more interesting than maxing his powers out. But also the idea that, well, you make the character important by having them lead a team. And yeah, I have really mixed feelings about that because I think some of the dynamics with Nightcrawler that I've actually enjoyed more are when he's backing up somebody else, which speaks to those elements that we've been talking about with this character, both in this podcast and on so many other ones, that he is this empathetic, supportive character. And I really liked the idea, although I didn't like X-Men Gold as a series, I liked him being sort of Kitty's number two in that series. To me, that was like a great dynamic that, you know, I would love to see explored more. I think that that is a more natural role for those two characters in relation to each other. Kurt would love to cede leadership to Kitty and back her up. And I also really liked him backing up Jean in X-Men Red. Like, I really love those dynamics. I love when he's backing up Storm as leader. That's another great dynamic. And I don't know, I, I sort of wish that we could kind of embrace the value of that a little bit more, maybe. And, you know, when you're a fan of a character... They don't necessarily have to be the star. Like there can be a lot of valuable stories to be told with a character in a more supportive role. And ideally a team book sort of manages those roles. So yeah, I don't know. I've got, I've got mixed feelings about it because it does always seem like every time someone tries to make him a leader figure, you have to change the character in order to make that work. And then that gets reflected in the story sometimes with the character, you know, reckoning with just as you're saying, Armand. And, you know, for, for all of the flaws of the Chuck Austin run, he did have a lot of affection for Nightcrawler, which gets overshadowed by the fact that he wrote the Draco which everybody hates so much and you know is a flawed take on that character for all sorts of reasons but I do think that his love for that character also shines through I mean he's he clearly sort of loved the joyfulness and the playfulness of Nightcrawler and like whether you buy into Chuck's humor or not he certainly wrote the character in that way which I do appreciate I will say um the Draco actually the uh, India stopped publishing comics well before the Draco so I actually haven't read that one yet and I've been told (laughs) Not to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> here's, here's the thing about it, Armand. Like, it has such a reputation of being so bad that you're going to read it and be like, that was bad. But, like, people act like it's, like, eye-bleedingly bad. And, I mean, it's not that bad. It's bad, but, I mean, I've I've read worse. It's, I really have. It's one of those things where this is this is the problem with comic book fans. I'd say geek, geek culture people in general, but this is in particular for comic book fans and superhero comic book fans. There is this inclination to take things that are memorably bad, perhaps disappointing, and talk about them like they're the worst thing ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When in reality, I did a talk once about um, it's the one that Andrew made the Claremont, Claremont ran thread out. I did a talk once about the TV show Iron Fist, to which everybody kept saying, "This is the worst. This is the worst superhero television show that's ever come out. This is the, this is absolutely the worst." This is <laughs> yeah. absolutely, there were all these things about it, and I and I yeah. said in this, this show came out six months after Inhumans. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> this is not a valid concern, and Inhumans, like Inhumans, wasn't even the worst that I had ever seen. You know, I've seen Electro Woman oh, and Dina Girl. There's so much worse stuff, but like people don't. You know, I, I've seen every episode of Black Scorpion. Do you know what mm-hmm. that is? Exactly. <laughs> I've seen Animal and the Cape. They're both brilliant. You're wrong if you don't think so. (laughs) But but like there's other there's lots of bad stuff. And the Draco is one of those things where I don't know that it's bad. It's not good. And it represents something that people don't want. Right. It was a it was a change for the Nightcrawler character that a lot of people hated because it wasn't the it was not my hashtag not my nightcrawler so people retroactively make it better than what it i make it worse than what it is when in reality it's just kind of a mediocrely bad not like it it's not i mean hell it's not the prometheum exchange yeah from this from the series it's not weird it's not weird war three the one book that we refuse to that we flat out refuse to you know know. do on this show so it's and that's kind of (laughs) You know, context. Context matters. 
it's just so funny. Like, I mean, I think I said on the last episode, like, it's funny that we didn't talk about the, you know, Mystique and Destiny and Nightcrawler retcon on this podcast, given, you know, my interests. And it's very related sure. to topics that we often talk about on the podcast. But like, when they did that, like, oh, man, like the fake fans coming out being like, but Nightcrawler had this really sacred origin that we really like involving Azazel. And I'm just like, oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, it's like famously one of the most hated X-Men storylines. And as much as we're saying like, well, oh, it's not like there's worse. It's just like, <laughs> that was I mean, so funny. Like, I'm oh my I'm God. Sure there, these Draco I'm sure there are. Azazel fans, where were they until... Where no, no, they, 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 no, they were there. And that's, and that's the thing. They were they were there because there's a reason Azazel's in the, in that movie, right? Like people, there are fans of it. And I, and I, He's in I that was, movie I was, because they wanted to do the Banff-like teleportation yeah, right, effect. Exactly. <laughs> no, no, well, no, but, but I, I, I had to take stock of that this week when I saw uh, on a random X-Men fan group on uh, Facebook, I think. I saw a post where somebody posted some old Rob Liefeld artwork and people were like, oh, wow, those were the glory days of x-men and new mutants mm. that was a, that was when i was a kid i love this stuff i you know why can't it be like that again and they're not kidding they're not being ironic they're just 15 years younger than i am like so yeah or not even 15 they're like you know five or ten years younger than i am because those those came out like rob liefeld had new mutants when i was a teenager and i was just like uh yeah this is not not what I wanted to be. Like I actually, I I didn't hate him as much as his reputation became later at that time. But there are kids who started reading comic books in 1995, at you know, and when they were seven years old, and those are their glory days, and that has to be respected in some level. So I, so there must be someone who read Azazel, who read the Draco for the first time when they were seven, and. <laughs> Yeah. That that's real comics for them, and so I, I think those people are real. Sure, uh, that person might care, be real. But... <laughs> I, I also yeah, sure. think in this particular oh, there's case, a lot of, yes, there yes, were people sure. that there were like, I'd, I'd rather have like Satan be his parent than for like uh, a shape shifting lesbian be his parent, which is very funny. Yes. Yes. <laughs> there are also bad actors, and yes, there are. <laughs> yes, sure. like how dare Marvel <laughs> be so immoral as to erase <laughs> Satan as his father? Like, it's just what are you talking about, man? <laughs> This oh, is not an argument that a serious person makes. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Sure. Fair enough. Anyway, Armand, like more thoughts about about Kurt leadership stuff before we because I want to ask you about about Brian and Megan too. But oh, I, I sorry, I should get Andrew like on this too because I'm sure you have thoughts about it. But um, I'll give you both a chance to weigh in. Let me let me reintroduce that. I'm getting too distracted. This often happens when we do like a late night podcast. But I don't know. What do you think, Andrew? You think Kurt should be a leader, or shouldn't he? What do you think? I'm kind of in the same boat as you that I like it when he's not, but at the same time, I do want to see the character progress and having him move from a support role to the leading role, I think is actually an interesting experiment. I don't need it to succeed though. I actually find it just as interesting when he fails. Right. Mm -hmm. So just having that kind of um, growth, I guess, be represented, even if it doesn't actually go anywhere for Kurt, I find very interesting. Like I I like the story in Uncanny X-Men where he fails as a leader. Mm. I also like the story in Excalibur where Davis lets him succeed as a leader by being a different type of leader, an empathic leader. So so I'm interested in all of it, I guess I would say. But if I choose like a like a favorite incarnation of Kurt's leadership ability, yeah, I I like him in the support role, the 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 bishop's role, uh, which Mm -hmm. I guess is appropriate for the religious thing. (laughs) Yeah, that's a fun one. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Have we convinced you one way or another about it, Armand? Well, I am. I, I would enjoy seeing Nightcrawler leadership roles. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the, the, the phrasing of this is going to sound uh, a bit, I mean, it's tricky to work with. Because I, I think Nightcrawler would make a great spiritual leader and not, not as a Catholic, not as, or as someone starting his own religion with the spark. I think what Nightcrawler, my favorite Nightcrawler moments have been when he gives someone perspective, when he tells them, when he basically views the bigger picture and, and, and you know, sees how all the pieces fit together on an, uh, an you know, uh, empathetic level and says, mm-hmm. look, you need to refigure out your priorities or you need to see this thing that is in your blind spot. I think he could be the type of person who can hold a team of X-Men together when darkness is sort of tearing them all apart. Yeah, I mean... My kind of preferred role for him really is like kind of a truth to power character, you know, from his perspective of, you know, originally it was more of a unique perspective of being, you know, one of the mutants who was born different and has that self-acceptance sort of built in and, you know, 
that can contribute him to contribute to him being kind of that truth to power kind of character who has that sort of unique perspective you know an outsider among outsiders kind of character i mean whether that's been done like super well over the years is another question but i really like that that idea armand because i think when we talk about the character as a spiritual character i think too many people sort of fall back on that idea like oh well he has to be a religious leader but there are different ways to be a spiritual leader rather than be like a religious leader in a traditional sense and i think the stories that sort of have picked up on that have have been some of my favorite sort of versions of that element of the character as well but um okay let's talk about the brian and megan of it all a little bit we'll close out on that uh, Armand was speaking our language coming in with the Brian Br- Braddock slander earlier. So I'll come back to you about it. I mean, what did you make of, I think you're right, Armand, that Brian's never really made up for it. He certainly doesn't apologize for anything here, which is bullshit, but <laughs> I don't know. How do you think that the comic is working to sell us on Brian and Megan Armand? And I mean, is any of it working? So I've I've just recently released a game about writing your own romantic comedy. You have, and indeed. we've been we've been recording shows about it. So I've been thinking about romance a lot, and I think what I what I really miss here, what I I I really wish this comic had included, was a grand gesture on mm. Brian's part, something mm-hmm. that basically speaks to every way he's treated Megan badly, and rebuts that in some way. Instead, he just sort of sails in and is like, no apologies. He's takes her for granted once again and says oh well you know i'm feeling better we might as well get married in a week <laughs> yeah and that's that's not romance he he it, and you can see how much it hurts megan and mm-hmm. it, it how much strain it puts on her heart and i would like her to be in a place where strain isn't being put too much where she's being you know her heart's being strengthened rather than strained yeah that's that's a really that's a real i really like how you put that in terms of like because even if we're gonna go to tropes right like it's missing that grand gesture trope right like i i would feel better about it if at least it was sort of going through the motions of that one thing i did enjoy though is uh i actually did sort of enjoy the idea of her buying a wedding dress i i might not approve of the i, I might not enjoy the marriage itself but I can see that I, I like the sentimentality of wanting a physical memento of yeah. that day, of especially for someone who's a shape changer, who changes her form so often to have something unchanging that she can look mm-hmm. back to years later and and say, and, and say, you know, this this was the role, this was the dress I, I, I fit into at that time, whether or not she, you know, regrets it later as, you know, uh, I'm hoping one day she wake up and will, but <laughs> it was a moment in her life that she really was extremely happy and having a memento of that, uh, given how she's a shape changer and uh, how much comics change uh, over the years, mm. having a physical memento, I, I just think it's a nice thing. I think that that's a really good reading on it. And I think that that's very, very valid because we have seen Megan sort of enjoying experimenting with physical clothes in the past. I don't think mm-hmm. it's out of character for her. And uh, I think that's, again, yeah, a really, really good read on it because, yeah, it's different, you know, having that thing versus making that thing out of her own body. And because, I mean, that's that's a, like a p- more positive read on, you know, the way that her body changes within that wedding dress trying on sequence as well. Like mm-hmm. part of me is hop- happy that Rob remembered about her empathic shape-shifting abilities, although... He's playing it here once again in the context of like, she feels bad about herself. So she makes herself quote unquote ugly, which means making herself quote unquote fat. And I'm like, you know, mm. you know, <laughs> it makes her seem <laughs> like she can't control herself in these very stereotypical, hysterical, gendered ways and suggests that she's still not over these very shallow ideas of what counts as acceptable beauty standards. And I, I would really like the character to have moved beyond some of these conflicts by now and not be playing them as a joke in this comic at this point. But yeah, there's I can I can squint in a imagine a better version of that in which she's yeah. trying to imagine the person she would like to be when she marries her husband which is a very identifiable feeling i think you know in terms of in a romance you know 
you're the person, you know, ideally sort of, you know, being with someone that you really like being with, you're like your best version of yourself with that person, you know, that person through their love and through your respect for them in turn makes you like yourself better, right? I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about love. It makes us love ourselves better. And so that makes sense. But like, mm, boy, I would have liked it to be written a little bit differently than it's written here. I would <laughs> like for Armand to have written that comic with, with his vision in mind. I would have enjoyed that a lot more. I'll, I'll fan fiction the scene for you. Perfect. <laughs> Reparative reading. Um, maybe one line that I wanted to call attention to Go is um, Mo Moira says, ooh, this is all so exciting, just like Cyclops and Phoenix's wedding. Mm. And, and to me, that underlines what's happening here. Mm -hmm. like, like that issue came out. It was successful for Marvel. And they're like, how can we go out with a bang with Excalibur. Mm -hmm. um, and that makes it, again, derivative. That makes it imitating other probably better X-Books. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I again, feel like that's and a disservice to a comic that I've loved. Yeah, X-Books and Spider-Books, because that's what that sure. was doing. I'm going to reverse what I was going to say for my final thought and put it in here, and I'll use what I was going to say here, and I'll say it later. Um, so spoilers for people who are listening to the end of the episode. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think Armand has a point, and I think there is some Rob trying to do something interesting here with the with having the ladies trip to to the wedding to the wedding dress because I think if you know that Megan can change appearance with her powers which rob clearly does because he has her do it here right then you have to say there's a reason she wants to go wedding dress shopping and i think the one armand uses is probably what he's going for it's not about being able to look a specific way she can do that whenever she wants it's her power this is about her wanting to have the one thing that she's wanted the one consistent part of her character despite any writers that we've had on this series for better or worse she wants to marry brian this has been her goal for 123 issues so this is what it can be here so like there is some consistency in that and part of the ritual of the perfect the you know the perfect fairy tale wedding is and I get to go bridal dress shopping with my girlfriends. Now, they're the wrong girlfriends because Kitty is apparently off doing, you know, important X-Men stuff and Rachel is dead. But it's it's a moment that the character of Megan wants and I guess deserves that moment of classical girliness, which is the thing that she has always wanted, even back to the Captain Britain days is right. Like, like she she wants the fairy tale. She wants the television trope because that's who mm -hmm. Megan is. It's weird in that it's not written well, but, and part of that is just that it's rushed. Part of it is that I don't believe that Rob talked to any women who have that fantasy in order to write this scene. And here's why, because the wedding dress guy is upset because how many dresses is she going to try on it's been 15 dresses in three hours this is un <laughs> this is unreasonable and i don't know if you've ever been wedding dress shopping before or if you know anybody who has but in you know the classic fairy tale wedding like when you go dress shopping with your you know with your girlfriends to go do this that's the event this she's not being weird here the fact that it's no. been 15 you're recommended to do so. The recommendation, if you look up an etiquette book, is you should do at least five to 12. So she's three above that. And how long is the average appointment? An hour and a half. So, kind of, they're actually going slow. <laughs> you know, they're taking their time. Like, and, and this guy, and that's, that's an average. So, this guy who works professionally in a wedding boutique, like, he should not be irritated about this. It's no. actually kind of normal. And like, <laughs> you know, he just chose some numbers that seemed big. 15. That sounds like a lot. You know, how many do you need to try on? Two? No, no. Like you're, the average is something like seven to 12. Like that's I, like, it's, it definitely so it's, it's like he's trying, yeah, he's trying to like do her as a bridezilla. And I was like, that seems fine, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. like, but so, so it's things like that. That makes me feel like there was rushing here to just get the issue out because who's going to care about this? It's a scene. I need to show that Megan as a character is into the whole idea of being a bride and not in a creepy way. It's just that this is making her day. So like he does the, and here's the, I'm, I'm going to try to, we're running out of episodes. So I'm going to try to write a better comic myself here. He is giving her her indecision and in power and body type 
not just because she's depressed because she's not particularly depressed she's actually happy and she's connecting and she's losing control and you know you've got the fat but they don't even really call her fat they just say her size keeps changing which yeah, i think yeah. is a which i think is a fair a fair um thing but like she's got the oh too prissy oh too trampy like i i kind of get what they're going for she's she's not connecting to a person she's just connecting to the perfect body type for this particular dress because she's that idea she's that into the Mm. idea of you know which dress am i gonna it's a it's a say yes to the dress thing right it's the can you even dye my eyes to match my dress right like Mm -hmm. you know like that she is she is changing to fit the outfit yeah in a, in a way that I think is intended to be cute and probably didn't put that much thought into it any more so than, you know, this probably should have been more like six hours and like a hundred dresses than three hours and like 15. So like, I think he's trying to do a thing and sort of failing a little bit in execution, but I am, I am choosing with three issues remaining in the series to be appreciative of the thing that he's trying to do. I mean, I just, just a little, a little thing to add onto that and then we'll go to final thoughts, but I don't know. There was, there's a scene in the Gail Simone and Phil Noto series, the variant starring Jessica Jones about Jessica trying on lipstick for her wedding. And it was one of those moments where it's like, it's not that like only women can write female characters about, you know, like whatever we've talked about that before. It's not what I'm saying, but there is an element in which having that personal experience can make a scene like that so much more authentic and resonates so much more truth and like when I think about if that perspective had been applied here and we did see her changing her shape to the expectations of the dress and thinking about her identity in a more interesting I was like yeah it's just it's very similar to that Gail Simone Penn scene but the Simone scene in combination with Noto's art just like blew me away and made me feel so invested in a way that just the opposite effect of a, of a scene like this so anyway the similarity just struck me there um okay let's go around and do some final thoughts uh, give everybody a chance to circle back to something or bring up something we haven't talked about yet uh, i'll come to you first andrew any final thoughts from you this week uh yeah the cover um which mm. is the the classic neil adams living monolith cover mm-hmm. um also a, a dark phoenix cover by john byrne there's a really rich tradition of this cover it, it, it's almost like a like a wilhelm scream uh in the way it comes up and part of that tradition is you break the banner head something mm. happens to the excalibur logo and nothing happens to the excalibur logo and that anti-climax actually kind of sets the tone for the book in some ways. <laughs> yeah, they kind of screwed up this cover gimmick. It's true. They just superimposed Does his Mimic head over the title it. instead of... Yeah. Does Mimic deserve to break our logo? <laughs> That's true. This is also a good point. I did like the... I was thinking about the like graphic design is my passion in the combination of fonts and colors on this cover because, boy, there is a lot going on. Uh do's and don'ts for the design students out there um yeah i appreciate that andrew that's a that's a good sort of capstone for for the conversation how about you mav final thoughts sure uh the one that i was going to use earlier to make a similar point but like it it fits in just as well here um brian has a line here that's kind of amazing (laughs) where he says you know that's right don't have any powers um you know I hope, are, are, are you still attracted to me? Or, you know, can, you know, I guess I'm not as attractive anymore without my powers. And I think this is intentional because it came up before, right? It was a, it, it it's Brian saying to Megan, would you, st-, I mean, I'm sorry, it's Megan saying to Brian, would you still be attracted to me if I looked like this? Mm-hmm. And the answer was no. I mean, like he never said <laughs> it, yeah, but that was the answer. And yeah. like, and Brian's trying to like, this is clearly, I'm, I, I am 100% sure that unlike some other writers on this series, uh, Ben Rob went back and read the old issues and he's trying to do a callback. He's mm-hmm. trying to say, would you still be attracted to me if I were a normal person like this? And like, I think he's going for the answer of yes, because our relationships moved on. And so we don't, we don't both need to be super except that they're kind of not there. And I don't even mean that as a bad thing. I don't think Megan wants to be, wants to marry a regular schlub of a guy. Megan wants to marry Captain Britain when it's done well. The Lois and Clark relationship in um, modern Superman comics, Lois loves who Clark slash Superman is, and she loves the whole of him. And 
she has several times had to reckon with the fact of fact of would you have loved him if he were a human man and Nah, nah, she wouldn't have. She likes the, you know, she likes being married to this perfect guy who is perfect in that he's Superman and also perfect in that he is, you know, a big blue Boy Scout, you know, like, and she's not right. Like she's, she's learned to appreciate that, that she is in love with the whole of who Clark is. And part of that is the fact that he's Superman. And if you take part of that away, she has when it has happened, you know, when when Clark has been depowered, she has to sort of reckon with things and realize, you know, well, where are we in this relationship? How does our dynamic work if we're not, you know, Superman and Lois anymore, if we are just Lois and Smallville, this regular dude, you know, so I, I think he's trying to do a thing and it would have been great if he would have been able to explore that. But he can't because the book's ending. I 100 percent cannot convince myself to believe that Megan would go for Brian without his powers. Like, I mean, <laughs> there's a shallowness kind of to Megan. We love her. Yeah. But the only way that I can rationalize <laughs> her being kind of attracted to Brian, she's like, yeah, we can stay up for literal days having like immortal super sex. And that is a significant appeal of their very sexual relationship. And I have a hard time believing she's going to be okay with him being just a quote unquote normal dude, because they in my mind, well, yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite issues of this series is when they go on the date, you know, to the pub. Mm -hmm. And like part of that is like, hey, let's just go on a flying date together. Mm -hmm. Like. Mm -hmm. That's just the, which, which uh, you know, okay, here, I'm a regular human being, right? And one of the things that I've, that I enjoy doing with my wife is sometimes we go for a jog together, or sometimes we go and play tennis. It's just the thing that we do together. Now, if one of us were paralyzed suddenly and couldn't do those things, we'd still love each other. But to think that that wouldn't fundamentally change our relationship would be disingenuous, right? Th those things happen to people. People have accidents like they're, you know, and, and, and it's, it's traumatic. Like if you ever, if you ever <laughs> to use Superman again, the real life Christopher Reeves, like yeah. if you've listened to the stuff that Dana Reeves said about the ways in which their life changed when he had his accident, she loved him and she stayed, but she talked and she'd since died too, but she talked at length about how much it fundamentally just irrevocably changed their lives because they're different people now because he went from being the guy who was Superman because he looked like that to a guy who could not move below his chin. And that's a fundamental different change. Right. Yeah, of course. And I mean, the our, the kind of what I would just underscore is not that couples can't get through that or that they shouldn't be able to get through that. I just do not for the life of me believe this couple could get through that. <laughs> I do not no, have faith yeah. in right. the, the yeah, no. foundations of right. this couple. I have faith in them being two super hot people who like fucking each right. other. I do not have faith in them having a deep emotional connection right. that can survive his lack of powers. <laughs> or if they can, it's more than a one panel discussion. I, I believe that Megan could fall in love and be very happy with, you know, just an average normal human being. Mm -hmm. I do not believe that it could happen if that human being was Brian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Without exactly. his powers, he is a very whiny, entitled British guy um, <laughs> who is um, fairly sexist. And yeah. I, I believe any... Any good that comes in Brian comes from his the, the the generosity of privilege. He is in a good position, and when things are working out well for him, is pretty much the only times you see his better sides. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think that the obligations of Captain Britain, if anything, are the only thing that makes him a better person. And without those obligations, I think he's going to be an even worse person. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, Arman, any other final thoughts from you to close out our fabulous discussion of this issue? Anything you'd like to bring up or circle back to? Well, I I, I said earlier that I was uncrushable, and for the most part, I still am. This was still a fun issue for me, but listening. I, I, to the because I came into this issue just as a single solitary issue. I mean, I read the previous issue leading up to it, but the more I think about it, the more I hear you guys talk about it, I feel like something this close to the end of a series, especially one that you have loved, seeing it in that context, this mm. issue does feel disappointing. Like, like these characters, especially the characters that I really enjoyed when I was reading the earlier bits of this one, it, it, it does feel a bit like a letdown in that context. 
Yeah, that's one of the things we've been reckoned with in a couple of our previous conversations. You know, some of these maybe aren't bad individual issues, but as a podcast that's been podcasting about Excalibur for like three years now, it's hard for us not to bring that baggage with us when we're coming to the end of this series and perhaps wanting something more grandiose that's worthy of our own grandiose efforts uh, lauding this series over the years. My king, I couldn't do it. Excalibur cannot be lost. Other men do as I command. One day, the king will come, and the sword will rise again. All right, we will wrap things up there. Other than to say, Armand, I am just so very happy we could get you on the pod. I've been thinking about inviting you for ages, and of course it happens on like the final, the third final episode, but at least it did finally happen. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners about where they can find you and the awesome stuff you get up to. You mentioned the rom-com game earlier, so please give another shout out to that if you would like. But uh, yeah, what are some of the spots that people can find you online and what work and projects should they be looking out for? Um, all right, so you can find me on Twitter at Arman Babu, which has a link to um, all the other places you can find me. In particular, um, you can find uh, for my games, you can find me at Arman Automatic at itch.io, where I and my partner have just recently released a romantic comedy um, role-playing game in which you use a standard deck of playing cards to guide you to the entire act structure of a romantic comedy from the um, from the meet cute all the way to the grand gesture and your happily ending after uh, yeah i've also got a couple of more games released and we are recording episodes for the um for love is on the cards um which you can find uh on uh the daisies and dragons twitch and youtube channels I love that. I mean, I'm so like outside of like the gaming space, but you're always like describing these projects that you're doing. And I'm just like, that sounds like awesome. And like, yeah, I wish you all the all the most success with it because it's such a good idea. And yeah, just like, thank you so, so, so much again for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was a delight. I'm, I'm glad I could uh, make it right before the end. We're very, very happy to. So next, someone jumps out of a cake in Excalibur number 124, titled appropriately, Someone. And that someone is not who anybody wants, except perhaps our guest, (laughs) who said he specifically wanted to talk about it, and I'm eager to hear his thoughts. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, including our holiday specials. We've still got a relatively recent one up there. You can find those via our website or the box podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter slash x and blue sky at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras at least for a little while longer thank you mav and andrew for another fine fashion show thank you armand for finding the right fit with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for a truly epic theme song play us out